Praise be Jesus Christ, and welcome back to CarmelCast. CarmelCast is a production of the Institute of Carmelite Studies Publications. For more information, you can visit our website at www.icspublications.org. My name is Father Pier Giorgio of Christ the King, and I'm once again joined by Brother John Mary of Jesus Crucified. How are you doing, brother? Good. Hope everyone's having a good Advent. Yes, and we've gotten a lot of good feedback from our recent Advent episode that uh, that we did a few weeks ago. So hopefully those tips that you spent a good amount of time coming up with <laughs> are providing fruit for a lot of people. Today we are beginning our final episode of the season, if you can believe it, um, and just want to plug a little bit about next season, what we plan on doing. We had a lot of good feedback uh, from last season's book study, and so we're hoping to do that again in the spring, um, later in the spring probably, and we will announce the book that we're doing uh, in a few months. Uh, hopefully we can get a new one out ahead of time, but uh, either, either way, it'll be, it'll be a great time, a great study, uh, going through a book slowly together, uh, which we had a great amount of fun doing last season, uh, and so we're grateful to do that again next season. This being our final episode of this season, uh, we wanted to focus on something, uh, an anniversary that is going to be coming up in the next few weeks on January 1st, on New Year's Day, in fact. Uh, January 1st is the 100th anniversary of the baptism of St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, St. Edith Stein. And so today we're going to be focusing a little bit about this uh, great saint of the 20th century and in particular her conversion uh, leading up to her baptism. And if you're interested more about her life, we did do an episode in an earlier season kind of about overviewing her life more in general. So I encourage you to go check that episode out from season two to learn a little bit more about her if you don't know much about her. Uh, But we hope that this episode will be a good starting point as well. So if you want to learn more about her, maybe you can go check out that episode from season two of CarmelCast. So we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of her baptism, which occurred on January 1st, 1922. And it's interesting because there were a sequence of events that are well recorded that ultimately led up to this baptism. And so we have a pretty good picture of what uh, Edith Stein's conversion was all about. The first thing that we have is that we know that she read uh, the life, the autobiography, the book of of her life of St. Teresa of Jesus. And this had a profound impact on her. And we know we've heard the story of... Uh, when she finished reading Teresa's book of her life, she closed the book and said, this is the truth. And that's a, a well-known anecdote that, that Teresa herself shares, uh, excuse me, Teresa Benedicta shares with her, shares, shares with us herself. Um, but what isn't con- completely clear is there's some uh, discrepancy about how exactly she got this copy of this book. Because uh, I think earlier accounts from St. Teresa Benedict's own prioress uh, intimated that perhaps she had found this book in the library shelves of the home that she was staying at, and that home being her good friend and who would become her godmother, uh, Hedwig Conrad Martius. And the reason why this is a little bit tricky is because Hedwig Conrad Martius herself was not Catholic. She was a devout Lutheran woman, and even though Edith Stein was baptized as a Catholic, um, she she had to get a dispensation for Hedwig to be her godmother. And so it wouldn't make complete sense, I think, for us to, I guess there's a question there, right? Why would a a Lutheran have this copy of 
uh, St. Teresa's Book of Her Life. So the other, uh, the later development in how she came to read St. Teresa of Avila's Book of Her Life was a testimony at the time of Teresa Benedicta's beatification from her good friend who later became a Benedictine nun. And she testifies that she gave the book of her life of St. Teresa of Avila to Edith as she was boarding a train to go visit her friend Hedwig. So it's an interesting development um, that we have this testimony from an individual person who says, no, I am the one who gave this book to Teresa Benedicta. And we don't know exactly when she read it, but she read it sometime in the weeks after that. Uh, she was getting on this train in the late summer and within a few weeks, we hear a letter, or we hear about a letter from, from Edith to her sister Erna saying to, t to prepare their mother for her conversion to Catholicism. Um, but what's interesting to me about this whole aspect of reading an autobiography is um, how common it is. We know that our own Holy Mother, St. Teresa, read the Confessions of St. Augustine. And so it's interesting, I don't know, this phenomenon of reading the, the lives of the saints, especially uh, testimonies of the saints themselves, the writings of the saints themselves about their own life, about their conversion. And, and for me, like the, the content of, of St. Teresa's Book of Her Life um, is, is one that I think would have, that fascinates a lot of people, but it would have fascinated St. Teresa Benedicta as well. Yeah, and even in the word you used there, you said there's this phenomenon, and it, uh, I mean, I think it relates some to even Teresa's philosophical background of phen phenomenology, which is really the, you know, the investigation of what are these experiences. And it seems that um, when we read or even hear the witness of another, or read the witness of another's conversion. It's like, in some way, we're able to enter into that experience with them, experience what they were experiencing, um, and then it, it becomes like a part of us as well. So it's a way that perhaps the external knowledge of Teresa's, Teresa Benedict's study of Catholicism couldn't quite penetrate. Um, but when she was able to step into the life of Teresa of Avila, it could penetrate um, into her her own experience and bring about that conversion. Yeah, and it's it's a testimony too of the fact that we don't only have encounters with living people, you know, the people who we can talk to and speak to, but we we do. It is a phenomena, the phenomenon that we have these encounters with those who have gone before us, who we experience through their writings or through testimonies about them or through their biographies that have a profound experience. And I think there's something interesting too about this in the fact that it's it's a very Catholic experience because in the lives of the in, in the life of the early church even, um, the first liturgies of the church were all sort of centered around this notion of the stories of the martyrs. Uh, the first the first festivals of the church were these feast days uh, commemorating their martyrdom. And so, you know, from the very beginnings of the Christian church, there's this phenomena of people encountering the lives of 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 the heroes of, of our faith and, and being transformed by them, being um, convicted by them. Yeah, this very real and living experience of the church and the the church not only those that we encounter living here but also those who have led the way and gone before us 
So I think it's an encouragement. It's an, well, it's one of the reasons I'm very passionate about this. This is what I, one of the things that I study in my, during my master's degree is, uh, is autobiography, especially, especially the autobiographies of the saints. Um, but it, it's, I think I, I can't stress enough how great it is to, and how important it is for, for Catholics to read the lives of the saints, especially the testimonies of the saints themselves to, to be inspired. Um, and it's it's a source of of grace, I think, that that comes from that, and we can see that uh, in the life of Saint Teresa Benedicta herself. And Saint Teresa Benedicta herself wrote an autobiography, so uh, a plug there, published by ICS Publications. So definitely want everyone to read that because it is a fascinating look into the life of this extraordinary woman. Um, What's also interesting about sort of this period of St. Teresa Benedicta's conversion, this period of her life, uh, is that her, her, her dissertation that she had written on the subject of empathy, kind of, you know, really about what we've just been talking about, this experience of, of encountering the other person and feeling with them, um, you know, compassion uh, for what other people are going through. And so this was like, this was the, the focus of her life for many years as she was writing her dissertation and, and leading up to writing the dissertation. I mean, she was thinking about this stuff constantly. Um, and it's interesting because in the final paragraph of, of her dissertation, this is what she's talking about. Uh, it's even, it's, it's years before she even picks up Teresa's, St. Teresa's book of her life. She writes that, um, that the, sort of the, the question to be answered, the question that is probably uh, the most interesting to her and for, that needs to be studied further is this, is this phenomenon of experiencing with another, the other person's mystical experiences, the other person's experiences of grace. And so even before years, you know, two or three years before her own conversion, she's through her own intellectual inquiry, has been primed for for Teresa's book of her life, where where Saint Teresa talks about her experience of of her heart being transpierced uh, by 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 the angel, you know, and by in her profound experiences of uh, of her own conversion from from a nun, you know, in an ordinary monastery in Spain to this great foundress and now doctor of the church. Yeah, I'm reminded of some of some of Teresa's other philosophical works too, which ICS I think publishes as well, um, where she's speaking of this reality of the the problem of kind of causality of how is it that um, one's experience of another can cause something within them, and basically it comes down to what she eventually would write this dissertation on is this experience of empathy where you're able to actually enter into the experience of the other um, and experience it with them. Right. Right. And it's interesting because after after she reads the book of her life, after she decides that she's going to be Catholic, she writes to her friend, uh, Roman Ingarten, who was who was uh, kind of an intellectual, I don't know, intellectual best friend, if you could say that, of of Edith Stein. Um, She writes to him that, you know, this has become a renewed interest for me. Um, And she's referring, you know, not in so many words, but she's referring to her experience of, of reading Teresa's life. Um, and she says, you know, this is what I'm going to spend the rest of my career on is this experience of, of, uh, of the religious, the experience of people's, uh, religious experiences and, and how do we, how we encounter those in ourselves. Um, I don't know if you were going to bring this up, but there's also prior to her conversion, this experience she had, 
of um, go visiting her friend's house is. Were you gonna? Can you tell that? That's. I wasn't gonna say that, uh, but it's a it's a great it's another great sort of example of how she was primed for this encounter with Saint Teresa of Avila. Um, and she she t- tells us about this herself in her autobiography, and she tells us about it in hindsight, um, knowing you know knowing you know her entire autobiography is in the, through the lens of her own conversion from being a, a Jewess to to becoming Catholic, and uh, but she writes this experience of being uh, in Frankfurt and going into the cathedral in Frankfurt, and and seeing seeing a woman uh, with her groceries next to her in the pew, uh, just spending time sitting. And she says it was it was a profound experience on her because it was like this one woman was meeting a friend, uh, and and certainly that would be that experience would be confirmed in Teresa's uh, Teresa of Avila's own writings, where so much of Saint Teresa's focus is on prayer as a relationship with Jesus. And then connected with that story too is the the whole experience with Anne Rynock, where. Uh, Anne's husband passed away, and so Teresa was going. Teresa Benedict, or Edith Stein was going to to comfort her and to to be with her in this time after her husband's passing, and she expected that this would be a woman because she loved her husband so much. She expected to find a woman who was just distraught and destroyed, um, and just completely devastated. And instead, she found a woman who was mourning but was still like hopeful, and. Um, she was able to, to say to tell Edith that it was because of her Christian faith, her hope in the resurrection, that she was able to re- remain strong, and that had a really profound impact on on Edith. Yeah, Edith writes that it it uh, it was like that it was she had gone to console her friend, and in 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 reality, her friend had consoled her in the end. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting, um, you know, in in uh, in the aftermath of of Teresa. Of Edith Stein um, having this experience of conversion, uh, she even writes to her friend Roman Ingarden um, on the feast of Saint Teresa of Avila, uh, saying that 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 she will become Catholic, and that it's it's too difficult to explain. It's too difficult to explain to him in words. And of course, we know that that Roman himself was a little bit of a skeptic, and so perhaps she didn't want to get into it with him. Yeah. But it's interesting. Over the course of those letters, uh, they they butt heads a little bit about the faith. So that would come later. Uh, you know, she, Teresa would have would have her impact on on Roman Ingarden in the end. Uh, of course, Teresa, uh, or sorry, Edith. Also, didn't she have experiences of? There were others in her circle, her uh, academic circle, who were coming to the Christian faith. Um, other yeah. phenomenologists, philosophers who were coming coming to the faith as well. Yeah, there's an interesting anecdote from from her her professor uh, Edmund Husserl, who says that the who who was Lutheran, uh, he was a con- convert to Lutheranism from Judaism. And uh, he joked that that the the Catholic Church was going to canonize him because all of his students were becoming Catholic. <laughs> yes, it actually reminds me of um, I I went did my undergrad at Auburn University, and when I was there, there were several of the philosophy professors who went to the Catholic Church, and uh, this is in Alabama. I mean, very small percentage of Catholics in Alabama, and especially in a university town, very small percentage of of um, people who, who were Catholic. And yet there was a good number of the professors at the university who were converts, to, uh, philosophy professors who were converts to Catholicism. So it was easy for me to see at that time um, in, in my studies how 
their, this search for truth that these people were going on was eventually leading them to the Catholic faith. Yeah, and, and of course, you know, St. Teresa Benedicta herself in her writings would write that, that, uh, that anyone who is searching for truth is searching for God, ultimately. And so there's this, I think there's another phenomena, right, phenomenon that we, that we can point to that, that those who are seeking the truth uh, intently and with, with good intention will ultimately, uh, we have faith, will ultimately find God in that seeking it's interesting too, just to sort of kind of wrap up our, our discussion, just the the experience. You know, speaking of more phenomenon, the uh, the, the phenomenon of of conversion itself, um, because I I think, uh, you know, in a in a time period within the church that we can't take for granted that those who are raised Catholic will stay Catholic, um, and with many many who are raised Catholic. Who have a conversion experience themselves of coming back to the church, those becoming Catholic from other denominations or from other religions as well, being being a prominent phenomenon uh, in the 21st century. Um, to reflect just a moment, you know, through the lens of of Saint Edith Stein's conversion, of what that exactly means, because I think so many people who will listen to this or watch this, having had some kind of a conversion experience, whether it be an intensification of their own faith, a coming to a better knowledge of the faith that they've always practiced, or a return to their faith, or a or a more conventional sort of conversion from one faith to another, will have the experience of it being a permanent change, um, from which there's really no turning back. You know, this this experience of my you know Jesus Christ has changed my life, mm. and. Uh, it's interesting because, you know, this is an experience that, that St. Teresa of Avila had herself from being kind of a run-of-the-mill nun to a foundress of a religious order. Um, and we can point to St. Augustine being another example uh, of, of this sort of thing. So to consider what, like a, what a conversion means and, and the, the permanency of it and, and the fact, the reason why I think it's permanent is because of the actual grace, the actual grace that we receive from God through our experience of this conversion, um, this complete changing of our life. Right. It's not something external to us, but something that touches us in the deepest part of who we are and then changes something within us um, so that we're no longer the same. I, I, the analogy that I'm thinking of, it, it comes from the book of, of St. Teresa's life itself, the, the trans we talked about it before the transpiercing of her heart uh it's it becomes a permanent wound um and and there's no going back to before the wound um and saint teresa benedicta as a as a nun wrote a, a beautiful sonnet double sonnet um about saint teresa's uh transverberation or the transpiercing of her heart uh, and it's interesting because in this poem, it, it, it's uh, it's not published in English, although I did translate it for on our blog, and maybe we can put a link to that. Um, that was a f- about a year ago I did that, um, so you can see it. But this poem about, about St. Teresa's transverberation by St. Teresa Benedicta, it speaks of the wound and then, and then the change in the person and the change being immediately outwardly oriented. She writes, thus, what is lighted must become a light. And so this, this notion of the experience of, of being lit aflame by God, by the Holy Spirit, in one's conversion, 
then becomes a light for the world. And to speak just just of one sort of just to compare maybe in in Saint Teresa Benedicta's own life, uh, the the difference between before her conversion and after her conversion, um, she she writes that while she was sort of struggling uh, with her dissertation dissertations being a monumental task. I've never written one. I hope to never write one. <laughs> but her her struggle with this, uh, she, she writes that I could no longer cross the street without wishing I would be run over by some vehicle. And we went on an, when we went on an excursion, I hoped that I would fall off a cliff and not return alive. And I think she's speaking here cynically and, and, and not and not seriously, but but you know experiencing or, or um, reflecting on on sort of this experience for her of being so difficult uh, and so monumental that she she just wished that that she had never done it at least at the very least uh, and at the very most the most serious uh, of 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 turning the idea of turning back on what she'd given her entire life to in the pursuit of knowledge and philosophy uh, of being of being you know so bad that death would be better, so to speak. You compare this experience of her struggle with her final struggle at the end of her life when she's been arrested, when she's at a a transit camp with all these other, assumingly other Catholics who had converted from Judaism, being prepared to be sent off to their extermination. And the testimony from those who were there saying what the she, what she was doing in the midst of that when mothers were were inconsolable she was taking care of their children teresa benedicta taking care of the children of these of these inconsolable mothers and so it it sort of it shows what is possible when the foundation of our life is christ when we build our life on that firm foundation that was the gospel this morning as we were, as we were recording this but that firm foundation in which we build our life and and the transformation of ourselves from our previous life on on sandy or shade or, or shaky ground to the firm foundation of Jesus Christ in our life and what's possible from that. I don't know. Do you have any final thoughts to to or reflections on on the life, the conversion of, of uh, our our great sister of the twentieth century, Saint Teresa Benedicta? Well, just that she's she's. Teresa Benedict is such a contemporary saint um, in that she's so close to us in proximity and time, but also that her world, her experience of conversion is very similar to our own and our own need for conversion. Because so many people now, we can't just assume that most people are raised in the faith. Um, and so many of us have friends and family members who aren't within the, in the faith, even those that were raised in the faith who have fallen away. And so that there's hope um, through the intercession of Teresa Benedicta for their conversion and that we should ask for her intercession for that. Absolutely. Yeah. She's a great saint for, for today. Um, moving, transitioning to the second half of our, of our episode today, we had the, uh, uh, well, this whole season we've been we've been talking to, to people about the the Carmelite charism and the different ways in which it's lived, and we wanted to end this season in this theme of the Carmelite charism with um, probably the, the the largest possible or potential group of those living the Carmelite charism, but perhaps living it in the most uh, unconventional or more hidden ways. Uh, so we we interviewed a family uh, who lives down the street from us here at, at Holy Hill. Um, about their 
their experience of the Carmelite charism and how they feel that they can live the charism in the context of a family living in the world. So we'll be right back. Stay tuned. So I'm here uh, just down the road from our monastery in uh, Hubertus, Wisconsin with the Lesnoskis, Nathan and Heidi. Thank you for being with us, or I guess I'm in your house, so <laughs> thank you for having me. <laughs> We're glad you're here. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful home. Thank you for, for inviting me, and we have this for the first time in a long time, we have a live studio audience listening in because your children are being very quiet. <laughs> Which... We'll never even know they're here. <laughs> so the, the, we'll hear from a few of them a little bit later, uh, but... This season on Carmelcast, we're talking about all about the Carmelite charism and the ways in which it's lived within the church. And so we wanted to kind of end this whole theme with talking about how, you know, one of the most hidden ways that a, the Carmelite charism is lived, but also probably the most prevalent because it's happening everywhere, you know, not just in houses down the road from a Carmelite monastery, but all over the world. People are taking the teachings of the Carmelite saints the spirituality of Carmel and trying to implement it in their daily lives, which is a beautiful, a beautiful thing and a beautiful witness to the church. And that's ultimately what charisms are about. It's the gift of the church being lived in a special way in homes and in, in workplaces and all these things. So I was hoping we could just start, but you guys could introduce yourselves. Sure. Uh, well, I'm Nathan Lesnowski and I'm Heidi. And uh, we have eight kids. Uh, ages 15 down to uh, what now four months almost four months and uh, six girls and two boys and we live about uh, three-ish miles from Holy Hill you can actually see it right out right out the window there <laughs> and uh, it's been a huge part of our family it's been uh, both the both the place of Holy Hill and the spirituality of the Carmelites and the relationships with the Carmelites that we've had over the last many years has has been a really important part of our families so uh, how long have you guys been married 18 years. Wow. 18 years, yeah. So. And you both of you are from Wisconsin? I'm from Minnesota okay. originally, um, Twin Cities area. Yeah, and, and I'm then... from uh, Green Bay. And we met at uh, a college in town in, in Milwaukee. And uh, we, stayed, we stayed here and we've made a, made a home in the Milwaukee area as part of our, uh, our life together. So how did you come to know about uh, Carmel, Carmelites? Uh, we lived in Menominee Falls. Um, prior to this, and then we moved out of here about 10 years ago, and we were kind of looking at different churches, and we went to kind of one in the neighborhood, and then we found Holy Hill, and started going there regularly, and then kind of transitioned to all the time going there. And so really learning about Carmel from the friars, from the brothers, from the homilies that we heard. We went to some of those Advent Day reflections and things like that, and learned more about some of the Carmelite saints and their spirituality. And that's what really got me interested in learning more about the Carmelites, so kind of being introduced to them from the Carmelites. Yeah, and you have kids who have Carmelite names. <laughs> we tried to get them all in there right at the end. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, it's a beautiful witness to Carmel. And, um, so what, what is it about the spirituality that particularly draws you, do you think? Well, I, I think for me... One of the biggest elements is in, in, when we started thinking about and learning about Carmel, one of the ways we did that is we have a small group that we're part of uh, where we read a particular saint in their writings and we talk about what we're learning from that. And when we started reading uh, St. Teresa, The Way of Perfection, 
we were doing that after reading several other books about prayer. So our group really centered on prayer as part of our spirituality that we were focusing on as a group. And for us, it was a big reminder of how important and what bedrock prayer is for the life of a Christian, the life of a Catholic. And for us, we felt that the, the writings of C. Teresa really connected to us in that way when she's talking about how prayer is the, the unique connector of what it is to be a, be a person of Christ. That you're sitting and just being with Christ or listening to Christ or having your heart open to Christ. And prayer is really the way that we have our heart open to that. So as we started to embed ourselves in this life of thinking about prayer and creating a, uh, a, a spirituality for our family that had the, the uh, regularness of prayer in the morning, in the midday, in the afternoon, in the evening, uh, part of the Carmelite spirituality really influenced creating that and keeping that as an important part of how we live our lives. Yeah. And so how do you see family life in general, but in specific your family, fitting into like the whole Carmelite thing that's going on throughout the world? We love hanging out with Carmelites. We love love talking to Carmelites and seeing them. And I feel like we feel part of a family, family atmosphere of kind of interactions and spending time and really kind of showing our one thing that we can offer is showing Carmelites like a family that you have your Carmel family but then here's kind of the lay family out in the world and kind of that atmosphere and how we're trying to be holy in our daily life with dishes and laundry and children and diapers and all these things. Um, and so giving you a taste of kind of our life, I feel like that's how we can kind of contribute and be part of the family. Mm-hmm. And also a lot of prayer. We pray for you guys all the time and know of your prayers for us. And so that also you really unites us together. Yeah, I think that's so key, the idea of intercessory prayer within the life of the church, that, you know, the people who are consecrated are praying for the families, and that the families are praying for the consecrated, because ultimately we're in this together, (laughs) and we can't do it without each other, Uh, and I think that's a beautiful aspect of the life of the church, both the domestic church and kind of the monastic institutional church as well. I feel like it's been a real joy to know the Carmelites, in, a, in, a, in an extended way, right? Because you have that Carmelite family that you're part of, but also have that extended relationship with the Carmelites and to be able to pray for you in a way that we're supporting your ministry and to feel to a degree part of that ministry and spreading the gospel through what you do and also then seeing that represented in the way our children think about who they are and how they're representing their own faith out in the world and how the Carmelite ministry flows into them as well. What tips or suggestions would you give to, a, to someone who wants to implement more Carmelite spirituality into their family life? Well, I'd say it starts with the interior life, that your entire life of faith has to start with the interior life and the relationship that you have with the Lord and the way that that is executed through prayer. And any action you're trying to take in the world, absent that interior life, is going to be fruitless. You need to have that flowing from a relationship with the Lord that's fed by prayer, and then the Lord can act through your life. But when you people try to act out in the world these, these actions without having the, the bedrock of prayer, they end up doing so in a way that doesn't have those fruits bearing it. It's not bearing the fruits because it's not fed by the interior life of prayer, the, the, the relationship that they have with the Lord. So I, I think that the, what we're learning from the saints, especially, in, is how they're calling us to have that kind of devoutness. That's what I really like about 
listening from the Carmelite order is how much the, the friars have both an active and an interior life. They have both the life of prayer and the active life combined together because it really represents how important the life of prayer is. Yeah. And I also think just picking up the books and reading them, Story of a Soul and Teresa of Avila, Way of Perfection, I'm just reading those books and trying to immerse yourself in the teachings and writings of the saints has really been helpful for us. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of great podcasts out there like <laughs> Comblecast and other things that can kind of help you along that way of understanding their spirituality and kind of guiding you on the way to go. Are there any, you know, times in the life of your family where particular saints have been particularly present in your life or there's been graces that are like, like this is through the intercession of, you know, St. Therese or, you know, that's going on here. Do you have any, any stories to share kind of along those lines? Yeah, I mean, we had a particularly recent uh, series of years that we've gone through as a family where, uh, so we have, we have se we had seven children um, and we, throughout those seven children, we had not experienced any miscarriages. Um, and then we had three miscarriages in a row um, before our eighth child, Elizabeth. And in going through those three miscarriages, it was a really difficult experience for us as a family. And each one of those sort of brought with it its own, its own trials. The first one was more of a, a, a sort of shock, like, whoa, this is happening. This is not something we've experienced before. Why is God letting this happen to us? And then the next was this almost a sense of, uh, of anger, like, why again? Like, why? And then the, the one after that was almost a sense of, of uh, defeatedness, you know, going through each of these. And, and through each of those experiences, one of the saints that we really lifted up our prayers to was St. Therese. And understanding, asking her to shower us with roses, not necessarily to fix the situation, although that would have been great, but more so just to give us the faith to be able to be faithful through that situation. And when we were pregnant with, that, uh, with our eighth child, Elizabeth, uh, there was a lot of sort of ups and downs in that pregnancy that led us through this sort of emotional roller coaster as we went through that. And uh, turning that over to St. Therese was something that allowed us to, to a significant degree, be able to detach and lovingly detach from the situation and be able to then take joy in the, wow, Elizabeth is, is here. And one of the things that I feel is I consider a miracle to a degree is like outside of our house is this, this set of rose bushes. And over the years, these rose bushes have been not particularly beautiful rose bushes. <laughs> they've been attacked by, you know, by bugs and things and they've had a flower here and there and they've been fine, right? But my, my thumb has not been quite as green on those, those, uh, those rose bushes. But this summer, right after the birth of Elizabeth, they bloomed 10 times what they had ever bloomed before. And you could, you could just tell how much Therese, for us, was, was showering down roses on her family um, in, the, in the consolation that was this, or is this beautiful child that we, we have in our family now. And now every time when I walk up to Holy Hill, there's a statue of St. Therese, and I pause to say a prayer because it reminds me of how much uh, our Lord blesses us and our Lord is with us through those challenging times um, but then also is there through in the consolations as well. So for me, that was really, uh, it was a hard period. It was a, it, uh, it was a difficult period of faith and our relationships with the Carmelites were instrumental 
and helping us just personally to kind of make it through that. But now, now of course, we're experiencing the consolations from that. So it was a, it was a really meaningful part of that part of our life. And I feel St. Therese has walked with me these last few years, especially my vocation as a mom and as a teacher of the kids for homeschooling. And so kind of thinking in my head over and over, my vocation is love and living out that love while I'm doing laundry, while I'm doing dishes, while I'm doing all these kind of small things that nobody really sees. Um, but to really feel that this is what I'm doing for my family out of love and for, for my Lord and for my family. And so kind of living out that vocation at home and those little things has been really beautiful. What was it you said the other day to find your caramel? Right. Well, that was a, um, Elizabeth of the Trinity also talked about having like a cell, kind of like how she talked a lot about her cells in her letters that I was reading. And so kind of finding your own cell throughout the days where you can pray and be with God, yeah. whether that's folding laundry again or dishes, but taking that time to kind of quiet your heart and mind and to have that prayer time where you can get it. You've mentioned a lot of different writings of the Carmelite saints. Uh, just as we've been talking, but what would be one, maybe one each that you would recommend for people to read? It's kind of funny, but I did, I read Story of the Soul, it's probably my first Carmelite work, and at first I was kind of like, Therese almost seemed a little too perfect, a little bit too like, okay, really? Like, I mean, you were, from an early age on, she was just amazing, and I was like, wow, okay, I'm so far from that. And then I read like an annotated um, version by the Carmelites and had some commentary in it and kind of added a little bit more of the stuff that I think they had taken out to give a little bit more complete picture of her. Just kind of some more of the trials that she had in the, in the convent, in the monastery with other sisters and things, kind of some of those little stories. And then I felt like I could really relate to her a lot more. So it was a beautiful story, but kind of an interesting thing to see the two versions of, of the translation that she has. But that was one really... Um, great book that we read. Um, I think, I think for me, w there's, there's two to a degree. Um, I think the first one would be the way of perfection, but I like, I really appreciate the one that had the study questions in it, um, because I felt like for me that let me read it and then take some some time to really understand it for myself and how it how it was impacting the way I was living my Christian walk. I think for me, what I really took from it the most was about where she's talking about just resting with the Lord, you know, resting with the Lord and being in a, in a way to hear what he has to say to you. Uh, I, I feel like one of the things I didn't take very seriously earlier in my life was how powerful prayer is. And what, uh, understanding that the, uh, the nuns of the, the Carmelite order, they live their whole life just in prayer and in seclusion. And what that spoke to me, and it's something I didn't really realize until later, and especially after reading um, reading the Way of Perfection, was how much they, you know, when we when we're asked to about helping someone, we say, "Okay, I'll pray for you, but what can I actually do?" Right? Kind of like prayer is like whatever, right? But what they're doing through living their life in the way that they are is they're showing that. Prayer is the thing, and that the, act, the active life isn't as critical as what we accomplish, or as powerful as what we accomplish in prayer. So the, the way in which she conveys the, the, the sort of approachability of prayer in her writings is really powerful, and it's not particularly heavy, it, I mean, it can be heavy reading, but I, I appreciate how, it is, uh, how it's approachable reading.
I think the other thing, the other one uh, is some of the writings of Elizabeth of the Trinity. And she has just some very beautiful prayers where she's talking about uh, releasing her own will and taking in the will of God. And that being, the, the, to whatever extent she can release what she wants and really just to rest in the will of the Lord, that for me was also meaningful as we were going through some of our challenges with the miscarriages because I wanted something and I couldn't get it. But I had to be able to just accept that the will of the Lord is something different in my life right now. And that's okay. And I needed to rest in the consolation of the Lord through that. And uh, so, so for her, it was something that, or for me, it was something that her writings really helped me to, to kind of work through those, those challenges. Thank you, Nathan and Heidi, so much for sitting down. Your kids have been so patient and quiet, so we have to, we have to get them involved a little bit. Uh, so we'll ask them a few questions right after this. Hi, Maddie. I'm Cecilia. Yeah, yeah, I was just talking about St. Therese and her um, story of a soul and how she uses, like, she has, does small things for great love, and that's really cool and how she... She sacrifices, and even though she's not like a huge saint, but she does small sacrifices to achieve bigger goals. So that was. That yeah, was cool. I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> Cecilia, who's your favorite Carmelite saint? Saint Therese. Therese. Why do you like Saint Therese? Um, because she showers roses on. Everybody. She showers roses on everybody. That's awesome. Well, very good. Thank you for sharing your favorite Carmelite saints with us. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Now, Emily, you said that you love Carmelite feast days. What do you love about Carmelite feast days? Well, I like how the homilies talk about the saints and how it inspires holiness. And we usually get like a cookie or treat on feast day of Carmelite. Good. That's awesome. And Ethan, you have a special memory that you want to tell everybody about. Last time we played a game of the Catch the Flag, we crushed them three. I mean, games of Catch the Flag, we crushed them Three, two, one. Yeah. Zero. Oh, zero. Zero. That was so you played capture the flag with some of the friars and you guys crushed them. <laughs> well, that's a great memory and a great story. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Do you want to introduce yourselves? <laughs> and we have Therese. Yeah. Josie. Josie. And Elizabeth. Little Elizabeth, who we heard about earlier. Beautiful. So, who are some of your favorite Carmelite saints? Say, <laughs> uh, Elizabeth likes Saint Elizabeth of the Trinity. Of course. I like Saint Eustine. Really? Wow. Therese, who's your favorite Carmelite saint? Can you tell us? Therese. <laughs> yeah, Therese. Right. Benedict, who do you like to pray for? Who do you like to pray for? Pray for priests. Pray for priests. Wow, those are powerful prayers you're praying. Thank you. I'm a priest, you know that? <laughs> so you're praying for me too. Thank you. Very good. <laughs>